On episode 27 of the Violence Design Lab podcast, I'm talking about getting ready to train. Not just warming up your muscles, but getting your brain ready to take in new information and focus on the task at hand. It's something we don't talk about much, but it'll really help the effectiveness of your training. Outsource and to work with all. Welcome to the Violence Design Lab podcast. Now here's the mad scientist himself, David Barefoot. Greetings, everyone. David here. Thanks for tuning in. If you're a longtime listener, welcome. And if you're just joining this podcast, I'm a theatrical violence design coach that's here to encourage you to enter the world of stage combat, to coach you towards choreographing better fights, and to train you to tackle the challenges of theatrical violence design. I've been staging fights and violence for professional theaters since about 1992, and I want to use my 25 years of experience to give back to our fascinating craft and to train you guys, the next generation, to make it even better. Now this week, I'm talking about training your brain to get ready to train. See, fighting is about more than teaching our muscles to move in specific ways. It's also about teaching the brain to process information. Whether you're talking about stage combat, or historical Eastern martial arts, or self-defense, fighting is a complex and fast-moving endeavor that carries risks, frankly, if errors happen. In theater, you'll bungle the performance, or you might even hurt someone. If you're doing HEMA, you'll lose the touch of the bout, or or you could hurt someone. And in self-defense, if something goes wrong and you make a mistake, probably someone hurts or kills you. Fighting is so complex that there's in fact too much information to process actively in any given moment of time. I want to illustrate this by giving you all the possible notes that you might have to give an actor while teaching a simple small sword thrust that's paired with a lunge. The things that the actor has to think about is line up the point with the target, extend the sword arm into the attack, push with the rear leg to drive the body forward, step out with the front foot while making sure not to hyperflex the knee, send the rear arm backwards for balance, preferably matching the angle of the the rear leg to achieve the uh, most visually pleasing line if you're doing this for theater, keep the torso upright and balanced, keep your pelvis tucked in under the spine, finish with a straight line from the point of the sword all the way to the shoulder and on and on. And then on top of those mechanical instructions... We add choreography. Now, we might ask the actor to start this lunge from some other position that's not a standard guard, maybe from a duck to avoid her opponent's previous head slash. But this new attack that they're doing, this lunge, is going to be parried. So we also tell the actor that she has to redirect her point in mid-lunge, moving her point to a position safely outside her her partner's body as he picks up the blade in the parry of cart. Now, On top of that, we have the theatrical situation. This particular lunge might be the character's last Hail Mary attempt to win, so the desperation of this attack must be visible in the actor's physicality and characterization. So all those things have to be going on at the same time, and that's a lot to focus on in about a quarter second of stage time that it takes to do a lunge. Well, the truth is, we simply can't pay active attention to all of those things simultaneously when fights are performed at full speed. But if any of those parts go wrong, it's possible that the safety of the move is compromised, the illusion doesn't work, or we're not communicating an effective story to the audience. So 
we have to devise strategies to work on processing this information in chunks. I want to bring in something that I've learned from my life outside the theater. One, it lets you get to know me a little bit better, and it helps us to understand how to improve, uh, you know, violence on stage. I, uh, I'm a nationally certified American Sign Language interpreter for the deaf and hard of hearing in my, my day job. And unlike a lot of spoken language interpreters, sign language interpreters don't wait for one speaker to stop speaking before we start delivering the translation. We usually work simultaneously. That means we listen or watch, if it's uh, sign language, one incoming message, convert it to England, English. Unlike a lot of spoken language interpreters, sign language interpreters don't wait for one speaker to stop speaking or signing before we start delivering the translation. We usually work simultaneously, meaning we listen or watch one incoming message, convert it to English or sign in our minds, and express it with our hands or voice while continuing to listen or watch more incoming messages. And again, there's a lot going on in that process. I mention all this because in my interpreter training, I learned about a man named Daniel Gile, uh, who presented a model of how the brain deals with such a complex activity. And his model also really applies well to what the brain is doing during acting, especially when acting is layered with a fight scene. Now, again, uh, Gile was talking about interpreting, but you can think of it as uh, interpreting a character, since that's what actors do, right? See, Gile had two main ideas. The first was that interpretation requires mental energy that's only available in a limited supply. He called this processing capacity. Uh, And the act of interpretation takes up almost all of that processing capacity and sometimes requires more than is available, at which times performance deteriorates. That sound familiar? He's saying that Our brains can only do so much. We can't add RAM, or at least not yet, to to augment our processing capacity. But the good news is there's a mind hack we can do to reduce how much capacity a task requires. Before I tell you what that is, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a friend or a family member who doesn't know much about the theater come to see one of your shows? Most of us have. And afterwards, while congratulating you, It's about an even money bet that they ask you, how do you remember all those lines? I know, every actor groans inside of this because we know that line memorization is about the least challenging aspect of a great performance. But but listen to what that well-meaning aunt is saying with that question. She's commenting that simply recalling the lines would task her processing capacity to the limit, and she wouldn't be able to do anything else. It would take 95% of her processing capacity just to remember what to say. Now, are you that much smarter than your aunt? I mean, maybe. Actors tend to be highly intelligent people, despite some stereotypes. But but see, that's not what's actually going on there. The fact is, you memorized those lines early in the process, and you reviewed them so often that they began to require very little mental energy to recall. So instead of 95% effort, they began to require, I don't know, something like 50% or 25% energy, meaning you now had processing capacity left over to devote to other tasks. They became reflexive, almost automatic. See, if you look at toddlers, they have to concentrate very hard to walk without falling. Now, of course, you do it without conscious thought because your level of mastery of it. But 
if tragedy strikes and say you shattered your legs in a car accident, you might have to learn to walk all over again and suddenly walking takes up a huge chunk of processing capacity once again. Now, how does all this relate to performing a fight scene? Well, first, know your fight. Uh, Know it so well that the moves alone, the choreography, don't overtask your brain. There's, There's just no mystery about how to get there. Practice it over and over and over again, even if it's just by yourself in your apartment before bed. I mean, careful of the furniture, though. But the more you can reduce the effort needed to recall and perform the moves, the better. Because if you're still worried about remembering the choreography, there's very little chance you're going to have the mental energy available to also be acting much at the same time. Now I can hear actors saying, that that's your big advice, David? Know my fight really well? Is that all you got? No, that's not, in fact, all I have. But it is important that you do reduce the processing capacity needed for simple memorization of your choreography as much as possible to leave us room for other things. Now, we can also reduce the processing capacity needed for the individual tasks that we're called upon to do in a fight scene. In other words, the movements of the weapon or standard footwork or other moves of our bodies. In other words, if we are still thinking about how to execute a lunge correctly, okay, point, extend, lunge, make sure that my rear hand, you know, is is backwards right over my leg, etc., etc., etc. If we're thinking about all those details, our processing capacity doesn't have uh, anything left to devote to the acting, uh, or it has drastically less. So, we have to get to a level of competence where we don't have to think about it. Sometimes it's called unconscious competence. Now, if you're familiar with this model, and honestly, I'm not sure who originally uh, came up with this model, but it, and if you can, uh, if you know it, please comment on the Facebook page or uh, or on um, the website. But there is a model of skill mastery that has four stages. The first is unconscious incompetence. And this is a level where you don't know that you don't know something. In other words, you just start learning stage combat and you don't even know all that you don't know. Um, This is where we all start with a new skill. You're learning everything for the first time. That lunge, completely foreign to you. You have to learn everything. This stage takes the most amount of processing capacity to do the skill. As you get a little better, you get to a state called uh, conscious incompetence. And that means now you've learned a little bit, And you know what you don't know. You may well know that your targeting is not good. You may know that your punches tend to be thrown from the shoulder and not generate the power of your hips and torso and and, um, legs as you throw the punch. This level is is probably the most frustrating level of uh, skill mastery because this is where you realize, I'm awful at this. I suck. This is the level where most people give up, frankly. They try to pick up, you know, archery. And at first it was fun because I was shooting arrows. And now you, as you get to this stage of unconscious incompetence, sorry, conscious incompetence, you realize I cannot hit 
that target or at least the part of the target I'm shooting at with any kind of consistency and I don't know what I'm doing wrong and it's frustrating and I just know that it's not coming out right. As you work further, you come to the third stage, which is conscious competence, which means when I am focused, when I am uh, my head is in the game and I'm concentrating on what I'm doing, I can be pretty skillful at this thing. I can perform a sequence of choreography really well when I'm thinking about it. My form when I'm fighting, if I'm thinking about my form, is pretty good. If I start just not thinking about it, it can deteriorate. If I'm focused hard on where I'm putting my arrows, they tend to hit the target. If I'm just sort of shooting casually, well, they don't. The fourth and last stage of this this model of mastery is unconscious competence. This is the level of the highly proficient person in a skill, the master craftsman, woodworker, the person who's been fencing for 20 years. They no longer have to think about how to do an advance retreat or a lunge. They don't have to consciously uh, you know, point their, you know, their, their foil just naturally points, extends, lunge right towards the target. And this is not something that requires a lot of processing capacity. Ideally, this is the level that you get to with most of the mechanics of your stage combat training. In other words, this is where your advances and retreats, your cuts, your parries, uh, your, your standard punches should be. They should be at the level of unconscious competence. You understand what to do. You're told, all right, now you're going to throw a left jab followed by a right hook. And your body just can do that. You don't have to think, okay, wait, and then this goes here, and then and that target's there, and then this comes around, and then push from the leg. You don't have to think about that kind of thing. Your body simply does it without you thinking about it. This has moved your processing capacity uh, for that task down to the lowest level possible. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not doing it well or you can be completely out to lunch. No, but it means that you don't have to devote a lot of active attention to doing it right. This is the value of training stage combat. Um... In my last episode, I talked about some actors who maybe didn't need to train in stage combat. I know, horror of horrors, I'm I'm uh, <laughs> talking against my own game, right? But there are some actors that just, stage combat doesn't come up much for them in their work, so it could actually be, well, though not a waste of their time, not actively helpful for them to take a stage combat class because they don't use it in their work enough. For those people they're never going to get to the state of unconscious competence. So they are always going to have to focus more of their energy on just doing the techniques. The best they can really hope for is the conscious competence stage. The benefit of training stage combat until you are proficient at it is you've reached that level of unconscious competence and then we can move on to many more advanced techniques that require more skill or more attention, but the basic stuff we don't have to spend the time on because your body's already there. So that's the value of training in stage combat. But again, you have to train to that level where those uh, techniques that you've learned become essentially automatic or reflexive. Now, you're never going to 
check out completely during a show. The, there's too much going on. What it means is you don't have to devote so much active attention on what that lunge uh, mechanics uh, are. You can then put that energy into what is my character trying to do? What just happened the moment before that I'm responding to? Is there something in the performance space right now that has negatively affected the performance? Is my partner out of line of where he was supposed to be? Do I need to alter my sight line? Has uh, a cup fallen off the table and is in the way for our feet? You can devote much more mental energy to those things. Uh, So that is the benefit of training is it gets us to that unconscious competence stage. Now, another part of training your brain to train to do stage combat is to set training goals. Now, we all should have a final goal in mind. Usually that's, well, I want this performance to rock. Well, of course, of course you do. You want to look good. You want the fights to read, to tell the right story, and you want the audience to be amazed by it. And that's great. More helpful, though, is to set today's goal. Is the goal of this rehearsal to learn the choreography for the fight? Then set that goal and do that. Yes, it's great to have some ideas about the uh, the character and what their arc is during the fight, but if the goal of the choreography is to, for the violence designer to come in and tell you the moves for what's happening in that fight, focus on that. Don't worry about a lot of other things in that training session. Focus on the one thing. You can facet your training in this way. In other words, think of uh, a full fight performance as a multifaceted I don't know, gem or rock or whatever. So work on one, one facet. It, could it be this time I'm working on um, my characterization of the fight? I want, really want to know what's going on internally in my character's head at each moment. Okay, this time I'm working on making sure my vocals are, are clear and telling a story orally. Um, so you can work on various facets. When you do that, by the way, in a complex skill, some of those other facets might not be as great that in that moment. Because again, you're devoting your, your processing capacity towards one element, meaning you don't have as much active capacity to deal with others. Now, hopefully, you when you're working fights at this level, you are still moving slowly, which means you're not creating dangerous situations while you do that. You you never want to ignore safety concerns, etc. But go ahead and work on specific goals for each training session. And it's helpful if you and your partner agree on, on what those are. Uh, it's best, of course, to focus on technique first, and then choreography, and then character, That's the progr- and then speed. That is the progression that I usually like. Basically, know how the mechanics work first, put them together in the choreographic sequence, layer on the character, if you haven't already, but focus on that later, and then bring the whole thing up to speed. So that's another way to train your brain to fight. Now, here's another aspect of training with stage combat, especially when you work with different teachers. You're going to hear things that you likely don't agree with at first. Part of training your brain to fight well is beginning with an open mind. 
when you hear things that you disagree with, maybe your form is corrected, even when you think you're doing it right, or you think you're copying exactly what the instructor demonstrates, but they say, nope, nope, do it, it's just like this, and you, they adjust your blade, or they, they move your, your foot to the side, and, you, and that sometimes that's hard to do, uh, it's hard to process mentally. They're likely to be techniques that you aren't familiar with or maybe even don't see the value of. They're going to seem artificial or unnatural and awkward. And that feeling, that uncomfortable feeling, that's cognitive dissonance. It's that feeling that comes up when there's a conflict between one of your beliefs and your behavior or a belief maintained by someone else. This is especially true if that conflicting belief comes from a teacher in a learning environment. You're in that class, and the teacher is telling you something that seems directly opposed to something that you've been taught in the past. And suddenly, you, the red flags go off, the bells bling, and you're like, wait, that these both of these things cannot be right. Okay. First of all, I suggest do get clarification. Make sure that you're not reacting to something you perceive rather than that which the teacher is trying to express. Everybody expresses principles in their own way. Sometimes we express the same principle from two different perspectives, and it sounds different, though the same thing's going on. So first, clarify. Now, if you figure out or decide that, yes, these are conflicting beliefs, you kind of have three options at that point. You can change your belief and go, yeah, you know what? That is the right way. That is a better way. Then you can change your behavior to follow that. Or you can rationalize your belief. So you can change your belief, you can change your behavior, or you can rationalize what you know. In other words, you say, no, no, what I know, that is better. That is the right way. Now be careful, if you're in a class, this can be a sticky situation. So it comes up, can you question your master? (laughs) A couple weeks ago, a student of HEMA posted a series of queries to the main HEMA page, and among other things, he asked, why is it frowned on? to question the masters, these uh, historical uh, fencing masters, the ones he was talking about that had written manuscripts uh, centuries ago. And the, the, the person asked, why are we unable to critique things that obviously wouldn't work in a martial setting or even a tournament context? Now, unsurprisingly, this post evoked some strong reactions from the international HEMA community. Basically, cognitive dissonance sprung up all over the place. And some people agreed that definitely we should. We should question everything. That's how we learn. And some people responded that HEMA is, of course, a relatively new martial art that's trying to revive ancient fighting forms. And, you know, our grasp of the theory is changing all the time. Some others uh, maintain that Things that don't seem to make sense uh, and are things that we clearly don't understand yet since the old masters were involved in, in fighting for real and therefore everything must have been applicable in a real fight. But then others pointed out that the student who admittedly in the post said he'd only been training for six months, they pointed out that he's basically a noob who, who doesn't get it yet and he should shut up and keep working. Now, Although this particular post was directed to HEMA practitioners, it also applies to the art of stage combat and violence design as well. Is it okay when that cognitive dissonance comes up to question your teachers? What do you do when you look at a technique that you're given or you're being taught and it doesn't work for you on some level because either you don't think it's safe or or you don't think the illusion is working? What should you do? Well, that question 
honestly strikes right to the heart of who I am as an artist. If you haven't heard my background before, I'll give you a quick summary. I got my theater degree from Northwestern College and started my acting career. Then I got interested in stage combat, specifically sword fighting for the Shakespeare productions I found myself doing. And I began studying with a fantastic teacher, David Pop Stirsch, who at the time was teaching under the auspices of the Society of American Fight Directors. And through him, I earned credentials as an actor combatant in all five of the weapon styles that the SAFD offered at that time, uh, rapier and dagger, unarmed, quarterstaff, uh, small sword, and as I still call it, broadsword. And after about two years of training, you know, my 24-year-old self was pretty confident of two things, that I, you know, pretty much knew everything there was to know about stage combat and sword fighting, and that number two, the SAFD was the be-all, end-all, only safe method of theatrical violence, and everyone else was either doing it wrong or flat-out dangerous. Now, Again, you can probably see where this is going. Um, My arrogance was in for a rude awakening because neither of those premises was completely true or at least as black and white as I conceive them. So to skip ahead a few years, I moved to Chicago and I'd been choreographing fights for shows and, and teaching private stage combat classes, and I had about five or six years of experience at that point, and I had been fortunate enough to, to fall in with Richard Gilbert, another stage combat colleague who became my friend and business partner, and he and I started up R&D Choreography to do Violence Design as a partnership. And the point is that partnership was, without a doubt, the most important relationship of my career because it gave me a, a sounding board, a, a fact checker, a a safe place to test out crazy theories and ask any question I could think of. You see, after working together for several years in Chicago, which is an amazing theater town, Rick and I began to notice a couple of things, that many of the stage combat illusions we were choreographing or seeing other people choreograph on stage, they weren't working for us. I mean, when we were being objective, the tricks just weren't believable or fooling us. And so Rick and I literally sat down and started questioning and analyzing everything we thought we knew. And that time of questioning everything, that was the watershed moment for our careers. It led us to revamp nearly everything, including which illusions we used to our approaches to, to teaching. I mean, even like things like an advance and retreat and everything in between. But from that, our work grew and was by far the better for it, and we were became far better teachers because we didn't take the techniques we had been taught at face value. So there is merit in questioning your teachers. There are things you will disagree with technically, you will disagree with artistically, and that's okay. Get your brain in that headspace that that you don't have to accept everything a teacher tells you, okay? You are your own person. You need to be honest if illusions fool you or if you're just understanding the story they're supposed to tell, like seeing them as symbolism or, you know, even a confirmation bias that what you think you uh, want to see is really happening. But here's my warning for questioning the teachers. Don't think you understand a master fully or a teacher from a few cherry-picked quotes, okay? This is especially true of articles that you might read about another fight person. Journalists, people who write articles and blogs on the internet, they are notorious for taking quotes out of context, which can really skew what the teacher or violence designer or fight choreographer actually meant to say. So sometimes it can make someone sound like an unsafe, you know, cowboy or 
any number of various crazy things just from which quotes they pull for the paper. In fact, this has been going on for a long time. Roman philosopher Seneca says, and I quote, Give over hoping that you can skim, by means of epitomes, the wisdom of distinguished men. Look into their wisdom as a whole. Study it as a whole. They are working out a plan and weaving together, line upon line, a masterpiece from which nothing can be taken away without injury to the whole. Examine the separate parts if you like, provided you examine them as parts of the man himself. She is not a beautiful woman whose ankle or arm is praised, but she whose general appearance makes you forget to admire her single attributes." So, even Seneca says, Sure, you can take issue with something someone says, but you have to look at it in the context of everything they're saying. As you approach training, remember to keep an open mind. Allow things that strike you weird to create cognitive dissonance. Question them to make sure that you understand what the the person is saying, and then act accordingly. Only that way will you be able to take in new information, because sometimes things are going to seem crazy at first, or useless, or why would I do it this way? It feels so awkward. But then when you get the whole information, you realize, oh, I do it that way because that's a building block for this other thing that's really cool, etc., etc. So, there's a few tips to train your brain how to fight. If you've liked this episode, you can find all of them on the website at violencedesignlab.com. You can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash violencelab. And, of course, you can subscribe to me on e- on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, I think Stitcher. And, of course, if you have something to tell me, like a compliment or a constructive criticism, a question, or even a topic suggestion, I love those, you can always email me at violencedesignlab at gmail.com. Once again, thanks for joining me, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Until then, keep the fights on stage and peace in your life. David, out. Thanks for listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast. For more tips, tutorials, and downloadable resources, visit us at violencedesignlab.com.